Blog Talk Radio. A warm welcome to tonight's conversation with award-winning novelist, short story writer, poet, and distinguished creative writing professor, Elizabeth Cox. Elizabeth received the prestigious Robert Penn Warren Award for Fiction and was inducted into the Fellowship of Southern Writers in 2011. Her novel, Night Talk, received the equally prestigious Lillian Smith Award from the Southern Regional Council, the University of Georgia Libraries, and the Georgia Center for the Book. In addition to four novels, Elizabeth has published a recent collection of poetry, I Have Told You and Told You, and a collection of short stories called Bargains in the Real World. Of this story collection, poet Mary Oliver wrote, Those who know Elizabeth Cox as a person and as a writer know that she is continually courageous and melodious and has never yet softened the difficult facts of the world. Her stories are treasures full of truth, possibility, and beauty. Several of these stories have been featured on NPR. The 3rd of July was an O. Henry Prize winner. Elizabeth taught at Duke University for 17 years and in the Bennington Low Residency Program for 10 years. She held the Jack Kerouac Writer-in-Residence at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and taught at MIT. Most recently, she shared the John Cobb Chair of Humanities with her husband, C. Michael Curtis, at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It is a true pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest, Elizabeth Cox, to tonight's show. Elizabeth, welcome. It's a personal joy and honor for me to have you with us tonight. Thank you so much. Yes. I, um, it's been some time ago that I first fell in love with your writings when I saw the title of your earlier novel, The Ragged Way People Fall Out of Love. Um, I fell in love with the unexpected juxtaposition of those words and how beautifully they conveyed a, a complex concept. And since I first saw that book, you've gone on to publish many more books and to receive many well-deserved awards. And throughout, your mastery of language has prevailed. Um, I also more re- it's, it's true, you're truly one of the finest language writers I have read, um, or, or user of language in, in, in writing. I listened to The Slow Moon um, on Audible, and as I was listening to it, um, I would bookmark pages and write down notes of phrases like these um, that are, again, poetry within the prose of a novel. Uh The embarrassment of loneliness, a smile that had in it the very meaning of hiddenness, and the air hung like blue milk. It seems to me that in all the genres of writings in which you practice, you write as a poet with wonderful attention to words. And I wondered if you would talk to us a little bit about how you come up with those unusual pairings of words or... That process, you know, I'm not sure how I they they come to me after I am in the story or novel or poem for a while. They don't come at first, but um, I had the way people fall out of love, and then it came to me ragged. I should put ragged in there because it's the ragged way people fall out of love and how it's never completely done. 
And ragged means it's still there. It's just torn. Mm-hmm. And um, so sometimes I think these odd juxtaposition of words go deeper into the heart, bypass the logical mind, mm-hmm. uh, so that you have to think of them differently. And and I think that's what I like about language, how it can pierce you in ways if you use the odd juxtaposition of words. I think that's what poetry does. And since I read a lot of poetry, uh, it's part of my regular reading, and I love to write it. So um, I think that that kind of language enters the heart better than explanation can do. Definitely, yes. And it just kind of explodes it again in an unexpected way. So so these these unusual combinations usually come to you as you're sinking deeper into the story, novel or poem yes, exactly. as you're revising. As, as I'm revi- and as as I'm sinking into it. Or sometimes it comes in the middle of the night and I get up and write it down. And I don't know where it's going to fit, but I'll know when I sit down with the work where it fits. Mm-hmm, but sometimes mm-hmm. those odd juxtapositions come at night. And you, you know, in the dream state. In the dream state, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not quite so conscious. Yeah, and you have a you have pen and paper close by to write them down there? Yes, I do. Yes, I uh-huh. do. Uh-huh. Because I, I also write down dreams, so. Um, uh-huh. So those words and I come know, from that place. Uh-huh. And I I think I have read or heard from you that that one of your stories came to you completely in a dream. Is that Can you tell us a little you know, bit about that? It, you know, I'm not sure if it was a dream or if it was kind of a conscious dream state where I, where I'm in my imagination. But I know I I don't think I was asleep. But I was sitting and working, and and usually I have to <clears throat> start with a character and then work to figure out what the story's about. I mean, I love that. I love discovering the story. This one came whole. It was called Old Court. It was one of them that was um, read on NPR. But and and sometimes if I if it comes all of a sudden, it's not the story. It changes. But this one came whole piece, (laughs) and I had to revise a lot in terms of language, but the story itself was all there. And that was nice. I mean, (laughs) I liked that. It hadn't happened since. That's amazing, though. So, and you got up that day. Were you able to get up that day and capture it? I wrote the whole story. I wrote the whole story in one sitting. Now, a lot of people, I think, do that. I just don't do it. It was just a gift to me. Now, I had Uh to revise a lot in terms of language, which I always Uh have to do. But but the story itself was there. That's that's lovely. That's a a lovely story telling about it, too. Um, (laughs) Well, I wish it would happen again. Yeah, well, you never know. Never Um, know. You never know. Can I ask you to read one of your poems to us? Certainly. Um, The book is called I Have Told You and Told You, 
And um, I have a poem called Teacher, and it's for my daughter. And it starts off with, it was written for my writing teacher, who said, what is imagined is real. I think he got that from Picasso's All That Is Imagined Is Real. And uh, it starts out sort of for him, and then it moves into something my daughter did when she was about three. We were taking a trip, and we were playing a game where people were naming something smaller than the other person named. And, you know, my son said a mouse, and my husband said a bug, and but she said the smallest thing. <clears throat> so this is for her, teacher. What is imagined is real, you said. The imaginer's eye makes me crazy sometimes. It is blood caught in my pale heart, a river going through the house. Blindness comes in like vision, perplexing the inner space. Swans go on the surface, their wings lifting. I would go with them anywhere. That's good. It's what I told my daughter when she played our game, naming something smaller than the other person named. She was the smallest one herself when she said, the black part of a baby ant's eye. That's good, honey. The one with the wildest dreams wins. Try to remember the last time you stepped into the bark of a tree, closed it up behind you, a fat oak with rings going around your arms like bells. The sun can pull you taller in that deep chamber of wood, and all your talk becomes a wilderness. But when you step out from that, you find the world is not what you thought. Your earliest memory is not of someone, but of green water and cells changing or skin. You are as alone as you feared. Think hard about the breath you take. It is not like kissing. I can do nothing but shuffle these papers around the desk and put on my shoes. I am grateful for the string and the hard dark that pulls me in, for the imaginer and for the pupil found in the baby ant's eye, but mostly for the flight occurring in my daughter's young face when she spoke up and won. Mm. That's truly ex- truly exquisite. It gives me chills to hear you read it too. Um, uh, it's <laughs> beautiful. You. Thank yeah. you. And I, I also I was um, it's 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 also that particular poem is a wonderful example of not only the musicality in your writing, but also the very precise observation of the world. And also empathy and and um, nurturance, um, which you certainly do as not only as a mother but as a teacher. Um, oh, thank you. You know, I Anna. I I hear a music. I hear a kind of music of language in my head, and sometimes in my revisions or when editors get hold of it. They have to edit some of that music out because sometimes I don't care if it makes sense, and I sacrifice sense for the music of it. Mm -hmm. And 
I really, I really can't do that. I mean, and sell it. <laughs> mm. So, mm. so they they edit it out so that it makes a little more sense. But, but I do very much hear a music. I don't know if other people. I'm glad you said it was musical because I, I want other people to hear it. But it's what I hear all the time. Uh huh. And do you ever object when an editor Sometimes. is not hearing the same rhythm or the oh, music? That oh, you're I think most of my editors have heard it, but mm-hmm. the, it it sometimes goes too far, and I I know mm-hmm. that I know mm-hmm. that, and I but I can't always see where it goes too far. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I, I'm not able to edit the music that I hear. I have to have somebody else do that, but. I don't let them take it out. I just mm-hmm. let them edit it for sense, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. to make just so the reader will get it. I want the reader to get the meaning. Yes, and so people I let are them edit to it, it for at that. all different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, or else if they edit it, I change it so that the music is still there, but the sense is there too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you do you like to listen to music while you're writing? No, not while I'm writing. Music in my head is too loud to mm-hmm. to listen to music while I'm writing. Um, okay. I listen to it other times, but um, n- not while I'm writing. I have to have silence while I'm writing. Mhm. Mhm. And and also before you read um, the poem, teacher, you mentioned the quote from Picasso and so yes. I know that in, you you also your interests um are wide ranging and um fascinating and from paintings to physics and all kinds of things and um I know that I read um something that you had said that the, the topic like reading something about physics might not necessarily obviously apply to the novel or story or poem that you're writing, but somehow there's a connection that you feel. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you that? know, um, in the ragged way people fall out of love, um, mm-hmm. I took a course in astronomy mm-hmm. and and read a lot of physics. And what I noticed was that there is a particular order to things and and orbits say and if one thing moves out of the orbit there's chaos for a while until you get something else in there mm. and it felt right for a book about divorce I was just going to say um, that applies to family constellations family so constellations exactly and mm-hmm. I kept thinking how that stability uh that instability would would come back around with a new if a new pattern is developed mm-hmm. and um and you know when I wrote my first novel I had no idea how to write a novel an agent read one of my stories and said could you write a novel and I said sure because I tend to say sure to things I don't know how to do and I knew I wouldn't go home and read a book on how to write a novel. I, that's not mm-hmm. my way. 
But okay. I did go back. I lived in Durham, North Carolina, and I took a class at Duke University in the sonata and symphony, studying oh. the sonata's form, the statement, the development, the reiteration of a sonata, and then the form of a symphony. And I, while I was writing this book, Familiar Ground, which was my first book, yeah, yeah. I listened to mainly symphonies by Dvorak over and over and Beethoven. And I learned something about form and pace. I'm, I can't tell you what I learned. I just listened to that music and learned to write a novel. And I never cared if anybody noticed it, you know, but I often learned to do one thing by studying something else. That's really fascinating, and it's so opposite the kind of storyboarding, plot outlining, or reading a book oh, on how to write a novel approach. I could, I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to do that. Um, it's like if somebody shows me a dance step, I'm real clumsy. But just give me the music, and I can dance. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I can't. I, it's. Um, I don't go at anything straight because I don't want to miss anything. I remember when I was in school and I I was in the I was in the classes uh for algebra. Now all the highest classes, everybody was smart. I was the dumbest one in there. <laughs> and hanging on by my teeth. And I remember I would go to the board and I would solve the problem. I would get the answer. But I would take about 14 steps to get there. And the smart ones would say, you could do it one, two, three. But you know, I didn't want to do it one, two, three. I wanted wanted to include more steps. I, I don't know what that says about me. I also couldn't have done that problem again. (laughs) You know, I couldn't. I couldn't have done it again. I just and but a new and, a new problem you could use the same process. Yeah, with, right, 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 yeah. right, right. But yeah. I studied um, a music and I studied astronomy with uh, night talk. I read biology and botany, and mm-hmm. with the slow moon, I listened to the blues. Oh, so um, oh. I, no, I just did find you it choose, more interesting. Did you choose the blues? After you knew what Slow Moon would be about, and, I, and for our listeners, maybe, um, well, just can you tell not, us a little bit about? I think Slow Moon? I'd started I started the novel and realized okay. that the blues would help me. I'm, okay. I'm not. I have no idea how I came to that. Okay. In well, fact, again, I, had, I is, had used. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, I had I'd even used some of the titles from the blues, but I finally edited those out. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's a beautiful book about a difficult subject, teenagers, and um, uh, and and a, and a rape in a small southern town. And yes. the what's amazing about that book is the way this entire community is 
filled with very beautifully articulated, complex people. And again, how they all interact with each other and what happens. Uh, I had written down the Washington Post review praised its insight into the emotional turmoil of teens and their parents in the wake of a terrifying crime. Um, is that something, did you did you know about a crime like that and then decide to write about it, or? N- no, I didn't. Okay. And, okay. and Don, I, I, I really love that they included the teens and the parents because as I wrote about these teens, I realized that much of their damage was reflected within the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess I guess what happened is Columbine happened around that time, mm-hmm. and I kept wondering, what are we doing as parents raising children to hurt other children? Mm-hmm. What what are we doing wrong? Because I think we need to look at ourselves. So when these children hurt, hurt, were hurting other children, I, I looked at the parents. And there, there's nothing they're doing that we can fault them for, maybe one or two, but not really. It's just they have damaged lives, and those lives are reflected in these teenagers. Yes, yes. And... And that's kind of the story I wanted to write. I wanted it to be more than about a rape, but to be about these kids. And they are, they're good kids, yes. but they have some damage, all of them. Yes. I think, again, empathy is just so, um, is shining through um in in everything that i've read everything that you've written the empathy towards people in all their light and darkness i guess um shines through and and yeah, i hope so um yeah and 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 i i thinking like kind of tying the thread of empathy together with the process of writing you just described which is not a you know a, a following a, a narrative arc mm-hmm. or a plot outline yeah. Let's move in, into your teaching, and I know you're a wonderful teacher with a lot of experience teaching. And I, I, I wondered two things: one, how teaching hurts, helps, hurts or helps mm-hmm. your own writing, and two, um, more about how you teach it, it, with the process that you just described. Well, I'll start with with how I teach, which is. Oh, my my writing teacher, he maybe someone else said it before he did, but he said, I'm not sure writing can, creative writing can be taught, but it can be learned. Mm-hmm. And I, I teach them, I think, to look closely at human behavior, <clears throat> but I, I teach them to look at the world, too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's mostly what... I've been teaching for the past 30 years how to wake up. And and they they do and then they go back into the world and I have I have I have students writing me they're, they're lawyers in Miami and you know they're and they're in the world but they want to keep 
that awakeness alive. Oh. And, and so I do hear from them over and over. And I can tell that they're reaching back because they want they want to keep that aliveness, and it's hard to do in the world yeah. in working job, you know. Um, yeah. But I think that's really what what I've taught them, along with writing a story. But you know, everybody's story is different, so it's a very individualized process to me so that I, I have to hear what they want to tell and how they want to tell it, so mm-hmm. that I can't tell them how to do something. I can only tell them to go deeper into the character. I ask questions about their character until their character comes alive to them. Mm-hmm. But I, there... <clears throat> I've retired now. Mm-hmm. I did love teaching. I loved yeah you know, watching their minds open into that new imaginative place. But but when I was teaching, it's right, I couldn't write seriously. I could work on a scene. I could take notes about stories or poems or I could begin something, but I couldn't ever finish a novel or a story or a poem while I was teaching because to finish something takes a kind of commitment and I was giving that away to the students. Yeah. So yeah. I, I didn't have it for myself. Um, and I was always grading papers or preparing for classes. I, I love those years, but I also love being retired and mm-hmm. having more time to write mm-hmm. and read the things I want to read, not just the things that I'm teaching. You know, yes. I just read all the things I want to read. What are you reading now? Um, uh, I love Van Gogh, and I'm reading a book on Van Gogh by two scholars. I, I don't think they adore Van Gogh as much as I do. They, they, uh, they're kind of critical of him. I'm sure he has many things to be criticized, but I see him as a very spiritual figure. I, mm-hmm. I'm reading, rereading some short stories by Richard Yates, who is a master mm-hmm. at the short story. Um, I'm reading, I'm always reading some science. Um, uh, David Bohm is a physicist, oh. and he's written yeah. something on the implicate order. And yes. I'm trying to figure that out. I'm reading all kinds of things about that and trying to figure that out. He was um, a friend of a friend who was a dream therapist and used to visit her in New York at her apartment. Oh, really? Who was a dream yes. therapist? Kath, Catherine Shaneberg. And she oh. and her husband were friends with David Bohm. So a fascinating well, he's man. He's a wonderful yeah. writer, and and uh, he's accessible, yes. more accessible than others. Um, I'm in a Jung group. Carl Jung I've been reading oh. for 25 years and uh, love the way he talks about the darkness and I'm in a group of people who are reading him right now we're reading a lot about dreams mm-hmm. I'm always reading some kind of poetry uh-huh. um, you know Robert Richardson uh, he wrote um, he wrote a book on Emerson and one on Thoreau and one on William James. I've just finished huh. the one on William James, but he's also written a book that's marvelous called The Heart of William James. 
And uh-huh. uh, so, you know, I'm, I always have about eight books going, different kinds. Yeah. And if I, if, if I get to nine or ten, I make myself finish one <laughs> before I go on <laughs> right. to the next one. <laughs> before they topple off the nightstand. Right? Yes, right, <laughs> or, or, right. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and so in the di- in between all the reading, you also I know you recently completed a novel. Um, yes, that, uh, I completed a novel and sent it to my agent Marley Russoff, uh-huh. and the title is Question of Mercy. Lovely title, <clears throat> and it's um, it's set in the 1950s during the Korean War. Uh, a young girl named Jess loses her mother. Her mother dies. And her father remarries a woman who has a um, mentally challenged son. They, they called it retarded at that time in the 50s. The girl hates the intrusion of the new mother and this weird brother, she calls him. His name is Adam. As time goes on, she begins to love him. But the boy, Adam is at the center of this novel. I, I taught uh, special education for almost 10 years in my 20s and 30s. And and uh, the students I taught were more mentally challenged than this boy is. But I did see how a lack of formal intelligence created children or people with no meanness in them. I think meanness takes a kind of intelligence. Now, they could be bad, but they were never mean. And I loved being around these kids. I've never forgotten their perseverance and their kindness. And so my love for Adam comes from my love for those children. But in the the 40s and 50s, these uh, mentally deficient kids were sent to institutions Hmm. Uh, as they began to develop their sexuality. Their parents would usually get scared, and they were lobotomized, as Rosemary Kennedy was lobotomized. right. Um, Some were castrated. They were put into induced comas. This, too, is part of my novel, and Hmm. there is a moral decision that has to be made. You know, I started this novel wanting to write about a good person. I had read Dostoevsky's The Idiot. I'd read uh-huh. Don Quixote's Cervantes. And usually, if an author writes about a good person, that person is slightly off or crazy. Huh. And I, did, I didn't want to do that. So the good person in this novel is the girl, Jess. But it's a good person who does a terrible thing. And the reader has to decide if the thing that society says is criminal might be something that they themselves might have done. You know, I I like stories and novels that disturb slightly or challenge our normal thinking. And so so that's, well, we'll see if anybody will take it. (laughs) She's she's trying to sell it now. That sounds wonderful. I'll hope I'll look forward to holding it in my hands and reading well, it. I'll um, send you a copy when it's done. Right. When it's all right, published. all right. 
what what about the you you do you move back and forth between novels and again the, your most recently published book is is I have told you and told you which is a book oh, yeah. of poems. Well, and how does poetry, that work moving back and forth between the genres? I like moving back and forth. I I've been working on the book of poems years, maybe 25 years, 30 years. Mm-hmm. I some of those were written a long time ago. But I've just been always writing poetry. I think maybe it's my first love. Uh, but my brother is the poet. My brother is Coleman Barks, who translates Rooney, yeah. and yep. he's the poet. So yep. he's got that sewn up. <laughs> but I, I, he made me love poetry. And so I'm always writing poems. But... I, in between, I usually can tell now when I start something. I start with a character or a scene or an image. If it's an image, it's usually a poem. Um, characters are stories or novels. But I can mm-hmm. tell if it's, if it's a kind of um, piece of a life, it's a short story. If it's gonna, I can tell pretty soon if it's a a poem or a story or a novel. And um, I'm I'm working on a book of essays right now uh, called Vespers. And oh. um, it's really about spiritual life, which I'm very uncomfortable writing about. But, um, but those are essays, and that, I'm not sure what starts an essay for me. Maybe an, some idea that I get while I'm reading something and and see it move into a part of recognizable life. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's how it starts. But I'm um, delighted to know that you're writing a book of essays about spirituality. Um, and That's hard and, to write about, you know? Yes, yes without being cliched or that's right that's right without missing without without missing the mark i guess mm-hmm. um do, mm-hmm. do you do you see that writing and do you see a connection between writing and spirituality in your own life in your own practices i guess or um um or you know, on your I, own journey. And the word spirituality itself, I think, is a weighted word. But I, I but think so, whatever, too. Yeah, but whatever it means for you in your life, and, and that's probably a movable thing, too, what it means. But um, how do you see it connecting to the act of writing or vice versa? Um, you know, I might, I might be able to answer that better after I finish this book. I, okay. I've never right. seen well, it connected to my writing connected to spirituality except to try to tell the truth. Um mm-hmm. and spirituality to me is is um is so private mm-hmm. and so how in the world I'm gonna write about these things. I I write about silence. <laughs> That's the hardest one to write about. Um I I write about darkness. That's part of my spirituality. Yep. Facing the adversary. Um yeah. and, and 
And Carl Jung says that's the only way transformation can occur is by faith. And so in that way, uh, maybe it enters my writing, but I'm not sure it's all that conscious. Maybe with this book, I will make it more conscious. Mm-hmm. I I wrote about uh, one essays about col uh, see contemplating Columbine and the loss of imagination, um, and oh let's see, and and a lot of this comes from reading other things that give me images mm-hmm. uh, that talk about an idea that's better than talking about it straight out. So I think mm-hmm. even in these essays, I'm telling stories and using images. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, but I really I'm, will look forward to that, to that book. If I ever finish it. <laughs> you will. But, you will. <laughs> can, 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 um, um, we're, we're coming up on the, the end of our time together. Unfortunately, I feel like I could talk with you much longer, but um, I, I want to make sure that we have time for you to read another one of your poems as well. And okay, um, I would love to sh- for you to share that with our listeners. Okay. Thanks. All right. Um, this is a poem. I oh uh, the book I have told you and told you. My editor was going to change the title, which I loved, because I didn't have a title poem. So I said, "No, no, I'll ha- I'll write a title poem." So uh-huh. I I wrote a title poem for my students, and and I always told my students to be awake. To I would say, "Do you care how light falls into a room? <laughs> Do you care a lot?" And so this is for my students. Also, I. I, when I married my husband, he uh, I, I always go out and look at the moon at night. And one night, and I sit on the ground, and, and one night he woke up in the morning and he said, why do we have leaves in our bed? <laughs> so the, that part is in this point, too. <laughs> For my students, I've told you and told you not to throw sticks. When you pick up a stick... Look instead to see if it has life, any shade of green, or see if it is brittle, breaking apart. Either way is right. I have told you so many times how to peel a peach, skimming the thin edge of fuzz to find the pulp and juice below. I have told you to bury the large, hard seed, and a whole tree might grow. I have said you must dip your feet into every river you pass, so that water licks your legs and, for a moment, breaks the flow before all goes back to what it was. I've told you and told you to rise up in the middle of the night to see the moon, to find where it is, to sit on the ground in the moonlight until leaves stick to your gown and the next morning wake to find leaves on your bed sheets. I've instructed you about ways to sing to animals and rocks, to children in the yard, to a hummingbird, or to yourself when you remember someone who is gone. I've told you to see the world, to be awake and amazed at the way light falls into a room or the way shadows change with each season, 
to walk on mountainsides anticipating a glimpse of those tiny blue flowers hiding beneath thick stems. I've told you to seek the heart of someone's face, to look behind what is said and hear the language of all that cannot be spoken. I've told you, too, about trees and how to dive inside those rings, wrapping them around your arms until you don't remember who you are. If you can do these things, you will never be bored. You will be wide, wide awake. Again, absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, Donna. Mm -hmm. Your writings, to me, your writings help readers awake, and that's a true gift to all of us, so thank you. Thank you. um, Again, I'd love to talk forever, but um, (laughs) I'm going to to put on the uh, closing here and I just thank you so much. Oh, before I end, are there is there anything we're waiting for the for the novel to come out and the book of essays to be finished? Are there any other upcoming events or news uh, well, I need to know about? Uh the the book Night Talk is a freshman it was chosen for the freshman at Walford College and and uh I'm I'm setting up some readings in Durham but I don't have them on my um, I don't have them posted yet. It's elizabethcox.net is yeah. where you'd find me. Yes, elizabethcox.net, yes. And um, um, your books are there, and we have your books for sale on the Ferret website as well. And uh, we're going to give a copy of I Have Told You and Told You to one of our listeners tonight, too. So Good. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Elizabeth. I and enjoyed this so much. Thank you. Right, me too. Thank you. And have a good rest of your evening. All right. Goodbye, Donna. Bye-bye. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's Teferit Talk. The show will be archived and accessible for later listening on our website at www.teferitjournal.com. You're invited to join our global community of writers there and to subscribe to our literary magazine. You can enjoy a generous 40% off summer discount if we hear from you before August 31st. While on the website, you can also order a copy of our first Deferred Talk book of transcribed interviews with Robert Pinsky, Ed Hirsch, Julia Cameron, and more. Special thanks for this and all our shows to Melissa Studdard, R. Jeffries, and Udo Hintz. Please join us at Teferid Talk next month when we interview poet Aliki Barnstone on Tuesday, August 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have questions you'd like to ask this wonderful poet, please email them to us at editors at before the show. In the meantime, all of us at Ferret, wish you and the world a meaningful and creative peace.